You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. From a land, from a faraway place Where the caravan camels roam Where it's flat and immense And the heat is intense It's barbaric, but hey, it's home When the wind's from the east And the sun's from the west And the sand in the glass is right Come on down, stop on by Hop a carpet and fly To another Arabian night Arabian nights Like Arabian days More often than not Are hotter than hot In a lot of good ways Arabian nights Need Arabian moons A fool of his Salam, good evening, and welcome, welcome, friend, to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation where we are soaring, tumbling, freewheeling through the endless diamond sky of the Disney animated canon, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art and criticism and fandom. If we were in the Cave of Wonders, we'd be super dead because we are not interested in whatever the lamp represents in this metaphor. No, we want to discuss everything about how these films form our affections and shape our imaginations. Hopefully along the way, we enrich the viewing experience and have some fun too. Today, we're chasing a magical beetle scarab across the mysterious enchanted dunes of Aladdin, the 31st movie in the canon and the highest grossing film of 1992. And my co-host, as always, he's royalty of the Christian Humanist Network. He's got 95 different podcasts, and to hear them, he charges no fee. He's generous, so generous. He's got slaves, he's got servants and flunkies, proud to work for him. We bow to his whim, love serving him. We're just lousy with loyalty to Amorous He, Michael Farmer. Amorous? (laughs) I've surely never had a friend like you, Josh. Yeah, and we've got a special guest here today, Michael. You want to introduce him? Yeah, uh, for once we have a guest whom you know going in and is not somebody from the network. Our guest is Tim Rhodes, whom we went to college with back when everybody called him Timmy. And now he is the (laughs) illustrious co-host of uh, Night Cheese, which uh, Mm -hmm. is back after a long hiatus. And also... uh, the show, uh, what's it? What's it, the way we get by, which is about, mm-hmm. uh, which is about how people are dealing with Corona tide. So we're delighted to have him on the show. How's it going, Tim? I, I'm doing all right. Thank you guys so much. I've been very excited about this this moment, and I I regret not asking two years ago. <laughs> well, if you had, you wouldn't be on the Aladdin show, and who knows who we have, if anybody. So uh, I'm glad you asked when you did, because <laughs> we didn't have anybody for this one. Oh, yeah. perfect. Worked out great. Awesome. All right. Well, um, what are, what are your guys' histories with this uh, with this movie? Well, I um, I was ten years old when this movie came out, so I was super super into it, and in particular, I was into the soundtrack, which we had on CD and which I listened to incessantly. I remember taking piano lessons in the early '90s and learning to play most of these songs on the piano poorly. I'm sure that if I looked at them today, I would not be able to play them even poorly. Um, so yeah, this this movie was hugely important to me to the extent that I found out today that it's um it's it's considered kind of a lesser movie compared to Beauty and the Beast and The Lion King and The Little Mermaid. 
Um, but I like I really have a hard time thinking of it that way. To me, it's up there with those in terms of its cultural impact, just because I was exactly the right age uh, for this movie to be super important to me. How about you guys? Yeah, so it's funny you say that because that is kind of the reason I wanted to uh, – I was excited to talk about this this film. Is I, I feel like even though I I'd, I know for sure I had seen – you know Disney films before this and and enjoyed them, but I was um I was probably seven or eight when this came out. I think I think seven, but it was just that kind of that perfect timing where I was really started kind of getting more into animated films, and uh, this one just hit that that particular moment in time where I just I adored this film. I I don't it's weird I I we may, must have had the soundtrack, but I do also remember like getting our like little stereo record and recording every song. Off, you know, holding it up to the TV and recording it so I could go back and listen to it over and over again. I mean, I just wore out the VHS, wore out the tape. I mean, it was it was something I just couldn't get enough of. I I loved this film. Yeah, I uh, you're still in my story there, Tim, because I, I did <laughs> I did the same thing. I did not have the soundtrack, but I definitely had a personal cassette tape where I I'd, I'd put all my favorite uh, songs, uh-huh. and um, I definitely had. Um, uh, the the one step ahead of the whatever whatever that song is, <laughs> is actually called one know. step ahead <laughs> one step ahead yes um <laughs> I was was one of the ones I remember I had on that on oh, wow. that soundtrack that I just I, my self made soundtrack that I would play all the time <laughs> um I, I loved that song and so like it had all the I don't know if the actual soundtrack has all the um the little interludes with the with the talking in it but um mine was legit it definitely did oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean, it's it sounds like this was an important movie to all three of us. Which I, again, I think I think it makes sense because if you look at the other movies around this, the uh, Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast are both definitely pitched more at little girls than little boys. This is a this is a straight up adventure movie in a lot of ways. They, they 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 there's a romantic element to it, but it doesn't feel like a princess movie the way that those two do. Hmm. Yeah, and we had a pretty steady rotation in in my house of uh, you know a lot of these Disney animated films. So I think I think both of those also got a lot of play. But um, yeah, just we we grew up at the right time. I mean, this is the Disney Renaissance. We're in the heart of it now, and uh, there was just a, there was a lot of good movies coming out when when we were at the right age for it. I was thinking mm-hmm. about that the other day that how how miraculous if you want to use that word that's probably too strong of a word it was to have been born in 1982 and to have gone through childhood with these particular movies little kids love every movie they see anyway but Mm -hmm. um i i would i would suggest that most people uh do not get to return to the movies they loved when they were 10 and say oh that you know these were these are actually really great movies maybe they do i don't know tim you're younger than us so maybe um maybe that's not your experience i I don't know exactly how old you are (laughs) but I know that you're not our age, so I mean, you you were probably ten years old near the end of the Renaissance, right? I think so. Yeah. So I, I was, um, yeah, I was. I'm 34 now, so I, I think I'm just a few years behind you guys. And um, but I still think it was still about about at that time. Like I do remember, you know, seeing uh, the Little Mermaid and really enjoying the Little Mermaid, and even Beauty and the Beast. Um, I remember watching and enjoying, and I probably watched those quite a bit as well. Um, I'm sure I'm sure I loved them and and just wore those out as well. But something about Aladdin and the awareness that I had at the time and um, the 
not to not to start going into it, but the comedy of it as well, I think really hit me also. Um, but but this was kind of I think the beginning of my kind of yeah that, I guess awareness is the right word, and um, just really kind of recognizing the greatness of these films, perhaps. I think the comedy is a good place to to kind of jump in into the into the movie, um, Tim. Since you brought that up, like it, it's obviously um, it's built around a couple comedians. I mean, namely Robin Williams, of course, but um, also. Uh, Gilbert Goldfrey has a huge part, which is basically him playing himself, and Robin Williams is basically playing himself. So I feel like a lot of the movie is built around kind of that comedic sensibility in a different way than definitely uh, – I don't know, Michael. Have we seen anything so far that's been really built around comedians in that way? Phil Harris. The, the Phil Harris roles in Jungle Book, Aristocats, and Robin Hood are, are riffs on his persona from the radio. And probably some other characters that we're less aware of just because we're not familiar with the, the, with the culture of the times as much. But I, I think Aladdin is certainly one of the first big animated movies to have – big A-list celebrities at the center of them. And and this would become uh, an, an albatross, really, around uh, around animated films, especially uh, the films of DreamWorks, where it, it seems like that's really all they do, is get some A-list star to voice their movie and hope it goes well. It, it works here in Aladdin because Robin Williams is the perfect person. It's not just that he's an A-list star. It's that he's the exact right person to do this. And Gilbert God, ditto Gilbert Gottfried on uh, Iago. It's hard to imagine anybody but him doing it. So it doesn't feel like a distraction the way it does in, in some of the other uh, animated movies that have big name stars. But this certainly starts that trend, or, or, or this is the what they call the trope codifier uh, at TV Tropes. Oh, I like that. The trope codifier. Trope codifier. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that's a, a really good point, and it's um, it is something that I kind of wanted to bring up because it's it 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 seems like there there is a definite split here about what makes this movie good, and it's like uh, you know Jeffrey Katzenberg is 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 part of why this movie is the way that it is. Um, he was a, you know, big executive at Disney at the time that was in, fr- you know, the head of a lot of these movies. And, and so it's his notes that are really getting, um, taken very seriously. And, you know, he, he, this is exactly the kind of thing that he was pushing for was more big name stars, more, um, you know, pop culture references, like that sort of stuff. And then um, eventually gets ousted from Disney and goes on to form DreamWorks. And it's like he learned exactly the wrong lessons in a way, uh-huh. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, from, from it. Um, well, anytime I've also- ever heard Jeffrey Katzenberg wanted to make X change to this movie, the change w- would always have been worse. Famously, he wanted Toy Story to be more cynical. He, he thought Toy Story was too sincere. Just let that let that uh, soak in. <laughs> yeah, uh, I saw a great caricature caricature from the time of um, Jeffrey Katzenberg as Jafar. Um, <laughs> that's, that's pretty good. But I do think that there's um, yeah there's there's something in that as far as you know the the difference between the uh, Phil Harris celebrity and the and the Robin Williams celebrity and what what they brought to the movies because I do think Robin Williams doing his doing Robin Williams means doing a million impressions. And so then the impressions uh, are very 
you know, pop culturally, whereas being Phil Harris doesn't necessarily mean like, I think there's a, there's a timeless, and this, you know, time could prove me wrong, but I feel like there's a timelessness to Phil Harris that isn't just because I'm outside of his era, where I was in the Robin Williams era, you know, where that, that ages the movie differently. So much of the genie's performance in this movie, you, you have to you have to be familiar with what he's parodying, and for the most part, I am right. So like, I got the Jack uh, Jack Nicholson, I got a I got a bunch of them, but there were a couple where I had to go look them up, and I you know was alive <laughs> when this movie uh, came out. So it, I I agree with that. The, the the pop culture references, especially the ones that are aimed at adults, uh, people who were adults when this movie came out, uh, do kind of date the movie. Yeah. So I've got a great quote in here uh, from Andreas Deha, uh, where and he's a, he's the animator who did Jafar. He said that his um, his assistant came in and said, "You have to get out here. They've lost their minds. They have uh, they have a caricature of Arnold Schwarzenegger in this movie." And he said, <laughs> and then I went. He's like, I went out into the hallway. And it wasn't just Arnold Schwarzenegger. It was all these different people, you know? Uh, and it's, it's Jack Nicholson and it's um, uh, Groucho Marx and it's uh, Rodney Dangerfield, you know? And he says, and yeah, I just thought they did. They lost their minds. <laughs> he didn't try to defend the choice or anything. <laughs> he just. <laughs> I just love that. <laughs> but, I mean, it, and it's it's really not hard to draw a line between this movie and movies that are much, much, much worse than this movie that clearly try to follow its model. And I'm thinking of the Shrek movies, which I've hated since yeah. they came out. Uh, they, they, I haven't, I haven't uh, grown any fonder of them over the years. And actually, uh, Tim, your co-host Stephen Standridge dragged me to the movie theater to watch <laughs> Shrek Two, for which I'll never forgive him, uh, having hated the first one. Um, I told him that, and he, he dragged me to see the second one, which I also hated. Um, but but those movies those movies do badly what this movie does well, right? It's a bunch of mm-hmm. jokes that are not aimed at the children watching it, that are aimed at the the, the parents. Um, except here, when you're a kid and you watch it, they don't distract you from the movie. At least I, I never felt like they did. Um, yeah. it, 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 it's kind of this integrated whole. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure when I was a child, I'm sure I missed so many of those impressions, but just the, the magicness of it and the like, you know, if if you miss one, just wait a half second and there might be something, I don't know. It just, it, I still, I still remember just being absolutely delighted. Yeah. By the character. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, and the other thing about that is if you're a child watching this movie and you don't know who Ed Sullivan or William F. Buckley are, uh, that just makes you more like Aladdin, right? Because Aladdin would have no idea what oh, yeah. any of those references are to. I was thinking yeah. about that when I was watching the movie last night. He, um, not only does he not know who William F. Buckley is, he doesn't know what a restaurant is. Like, there's that, there's that, yeah. that bit where he dresses up as the French waiter. He doesn't know what France yes. is or what a restaurant is. Oh, okay. what, what, what must he think of all those references? And so, so in, in some ways, being a kid and having all that stuff go over your head just makes the movie work better, uh, in a weird yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's – we don't have to stay on this point for forever. I, I do think the 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 one other thing, though, like on the on the bright side with that, like that's a really good point, Michael, what you just said. And then the, the other part of that that I think Jeffrey Katzenberg brought and that I think also um, Howard Ashman brought was that they wanted these movies to be 
taken seriously again. And so Jeffrey Katzenberg was coming at it from outside animation and coming saying, hey, uh, what, what we need here is like this is this is what's working in in movies right now and we need to bring some of that in and howard ashman came from from musical theater but like he saw um animation as the pinnacle like he was thrilled that he made it to animation and he he really wanted them to hold their heads higher which you could understand why they're not holding their heads high having gone through the dark age right right (laughs) so like they i think those two really brought a new attitude in um like in a good way into the studio of hey we can actually take ourselves seriously um as artists and as trying to make something and i think the the musical side of that lasted longer like the musical side Mm -hmm. of that is is a little more timely or, or timeless i mean than the pop culture references but i think it did need both together to kind of get us into this renaissance period michael when we were doing rescuers down under you asked me if i felt like it really fit in the renaissance period and um i didn't at the time but reflecting back and thinking about this like rescuers down under was doing the same thing like it was taking its its cues not from past animation but from like action films Mm -hmm. and this movie is taking its cues not from past animation but from buddy comedies and whatever Mm -hmm. and so like i think there is you know there there is a thread in the in the renaissance era that we we can we can thank these guys for for bringing even if we don't you know even if it led to like you said an albatross later (laughs) yeah and one one thing i think that this film did right that so many other films and you guys talk a lot about this so many films in the future learn the wrong lessons i think in some films and with in the future with casting all these like a-list you know actors i think with this one if i if i remember just through reading and um kind of looking into this beforehand seeing how they kind of had robin williams in at least animator like specifically had imagined robin williams for this genie and even in like the storyboard and concept animation did like concept animation to like a few minutes of a standard routine. And I feel like instead of, I feel it, if future films, it's just, Oh, how many you know actors can we get in there instead of who fits or who belongs in this? Well, and I, I also think, yeah, it's, it's not so much, let's get Robin Williams because he's an A-list actor. It's let's get Robin Williams because he is a human genie. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah, for sure. So I, I, I I really hate to pick on Shrek, except I don't because Shrek is terrible. But it, the, the casting of Shrek is infuriating, right? You have Mike Myers doing a Scottish accent for absolutely no reason, uh, and then you have Eddie Murphy being mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy. Uh, and and to to me, that movie is just it's just cynical and ugly, and uh, there's no there's no real fun to it. It attempts to deconstruct Disney movies, but it does it without any kind of real affection for them. I I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the 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 casting in those movies is part of it. It's 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 like yeah. they expected they expected us just to like it because they cast people whom we supposedly like. Although you know Chris Farley was supposed to be Shrek, and I think he probably would have been a better. Oh wow! Well, I want to go back. Uh, just you know, uh, you're right, Tim. That Eric Eric Goldberg is the name of the animator who really had yeah, Robin yeah, Williams that's... in mind from the beginning, and and did the the test animation to to um, Robin's stand up uh, in order to convince everyone, including Robin Williams, to to come on board. And so I think uh, we can't attribute a lot to him, like. Mm going in that direction and the other thing that eric uh brought was that he was a huge fan of 
Al Hirschfield. Um, the oh, the, that makes total yeah. sense. Yeah, and um, so That's I mean, great. if you if you look at our Al Hirschfield art, you can definitely see the influence into this movie. And actually, what they did was they they designed nearly everything, the all the backgrounds and uh, most of the characters. Jafar excluded because Jafar was meant yeah. to be kind of in <laughs> contrast to everything else. Jafar is mm-hmm. very pointy, but everything else is supposed to be like kind of in a line and. Um, and it's because of of his fan, or uh, yeah, because he was such a big fan of Al Hirschfeld. So, like, it, the the genie really. I mean, uh, the movie's called Aladdin, but the genie is is obviously the center in in many many yeah. ways in this movie. Man, I'm glad you said that thing about Hirschfeld. I never would have thought about that, but of course, that genie does look like a Hirschfeld caricature. Yeah. I remember reading about, about it, them you know animating the genie to that, but I, it's I didn't realize even. But now I should have thought about that. But more, even outside of the genie, even a lot of like what you said, a lot of the rest of the um, characters in animation. That's great. Yeah, and it also works nice with. I mean, they talked about this in, in one of the bonus features I watched. You know, like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, having great insights here uh, that are original. But they, you know, they talked about the. Um, Al Hirschfeld has the those curvy lines, but it's it's yeah. also kind of echoed in the Arabic script as well. Yeah. So, like, it, it just, oh yeah. It was just That's kind cool. of a perfect um, a blend yeah. of things there that well, came I, together for that. I may have seen the same um, documentary that you watched because I remember seeing Goldberg get just light up when he said that um, Robin Williams laughed at the animation that he really impressed Robin Williams, and I just remember seeing Goldberg get so excited about that, and that was just a, an endearing moment in that documentary. Yeah. The other thing that was really great that came out of there, because this, this thing was recorded in, I don't know, 2000 or something, you know, like, or probably 2002. It was probably for the 10 year anniversary is, is when they're, they're getting all these, uh, people talking about it. They're, they're talking to the, the co-directors, um, who I, I forget their names now. Um, Sorry, I got it right here. Uh, Ron Clements and John Musker, and they asked them like, "Why this? Why this one?" You know, like they they had several that they could could choose from. Like, why why this one next? And they said, "Well, we really wanted to do something that couldn't be done in live action." Yeah. Well, and then of course, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Ten years later, there you go. But like, it was. I, I thought that was really great. But it was it was the genie was the main thing that they were like, you cannot do the genie in live action. Like all the all the quick changes and you know he changes into animals he changes into a cash register he changes into uh you know these different caricatures um you can't do that in in live action um and so yeah i just i thought that was a great and, go- and gosh <laughs> who better to do that than robin williams right because i mean i i'm sure this is the first place i ever saw him and i'm sure that at 12 13 years old i went and found his stand-up and was scandalized by how yeah. uh, by how r-rated it is <laughs> but I mean that—that's really just his whole thing, right? Is these quick, um, yeah. these quick impressions for really no reason, and it's what you love about Robin Williams, and it's what you hate about Robin Williams. Yeah, I did think that was funny looking back how the two, like the two comedians in Aladdin, are like some of the least family-friendly comedians. So I wonder how many kids did the same thing, like looked up Robin Williams or Gilbert Gottfried. And we're just yeah, scandalized. <laughs> Let's just hope they stay away from Bob Saget's stand-up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think at some point we're going to have to talk about the unpleasantness with Robin Williams and Disney. Uh, did they talk about this in the documentaries you guys watched? Not the documentary, but in other... I, I kind of watched other sources and 
yeah, so a lot of it was brought up, which is it's fun. I mean, I guess I would have known this as a kid, but I had no clue until until preparing for this episode. Yeah. So so chime in if you want. But the the story is that Robin Williams actually took an enormous pay cut to make this movie. He 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 believed in it. He didn't want to. He he wanted them to use the money on other things. So he could have been paid millions and millions of dollars, and instead he got union scale. Um, and he did it really two conditions. He said. You need to not use my voice in any toys or, you know, kind of secondary level marketing. And the genie needs to be not more than 20 or 25 percent of any kind of marketing campaign for the movie. And so they said, sure, no big deal. And Katzenberg went ahead and ignored both of those conditions. And, uh, you know, they made talking (laughs) genie toys and. Uh, as, as I'm sure both of you remember, the genie was at the very center of all the marketing of this movie in 1992. Oh, yeah. And Williams was so mad about it, I think rightly so, that he refused to work with the studio anymore, which is why uh, Dan Castellaneta plays the genie in the, the first sequel. And the, the story goes that uh, Michael Eisner was trying to patch things up, and he, <laughs> he sent Robin Williams an original Picasso painting worth more than a million dollars. And even that didn't work. Um, and wow. it wasn't until Katzenberg got ousted at Disney that, that Williams would do anything with them again. So, um, you know, when Williams died, I think he came off in a lot of the stories people told about him as the nicest guy in the world. And this this story makes me think that, indeed, he was the nicest guy in the world. And Katzenberg <laughs> is a douchebag, just like we've been saying he was uh, for uh, for the last five or six episodes of this podcast. <laughs> Well, just think about that, like how anti um, like you were just talking about, like hiring A-list stars and that's supposed to make the movie is that they have the A-list star and how anti that story is to to that idea. Like, he's like, don't use me in any of the marketing, you know, Um, don't put my name on it. Like, even though it's 100 percent him, like the genie could not exist without it being Robin Williams, but he doesn't want it used as come see this Robin Williams movie. Like it's, it's, there's a weird tension in that, but also like, it's, it's just funny that, yeah, all the stuff that we were just saying about how Katzenberg went off and, and built a studio around basically using people's names to market. Um, and that's exactly what he did here too. So, Mm -hmm. you you know, going into these episodes, Josh, I assumed that Michael Eisner was the biggest jerk at Disney in the early nineties. And I am shocked to discover that he was only the second biggest jerk. (laughs) <laughs> yeah but you know still still great movies came out of the era so oh absolutely what, what i mean that's, that's the thing yeah. katzenberg managed to not ruin this one and he didn't they didn't let him ruin um uh they didn't let him ruin toy story or any of the other movies he tried to ruin the the the, the big thing that i know howard ashman was upset about was he uh, really wanted Aladdin's mother to be a character in the movie, and I think he wrote a song for her. And after he died, uh, Katzenberg yanked that out of the movie. I think yeah, that's I, right. I hope I'm not. Uh, uh, I hope I'm not libeling anybody, slandering anybody. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know the exact order of the events, but definitely, yeah. yeah. There was there was earlier versions. The the quote I read yeah. was that they they ran through. Um, <laughs> they ran through the whole storyboards and everything with Katzenberg, and they got to the end, and he said, you can keep the title. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize how, you know, I guess when they first did that, you know, ran ran everything by him, I guess it was, you know, 
nine, I don't know how, I can't, I'm trying to remember now, maybe nine months away from release. And he basically, yeah, scrapped almost everything. And I'm just thinking, but he didn't want to move the release date. And I, I can't imagine the amount of pressure and stress that that's, that's crazy. So one other wonderful thing Robin Williams did, maybe the last wonderful thing he did, left us was that his will stipulated that they would that nobody would be able to use any recordings of him that had not already been distributed to the public until 25 years after his death, which means <laughs> that the prequel movie that Disney had planned for their live action spinoff that was going to use audio from the Robin Williams genie had to be canceled. So I think we can all uh, thank Robin Williams' spirit uh, wherever it is today for uh, for making that abomination not happen. <laughs> That's interesting to know because I remember I was reading that how after you know a lot of his a lot of Robin Williams' recordings. I mean, a lot of so much of it was ad libbed, and that at the end of the, at the end of everything, they had like sixteen hours worth of you know him just riffing on things. And I've always been curious where that is. And why haven't we heard much of it? You know, I've always been curious about that. Well, you're not going to be able to hear it for 25 years. <laughs> what is that? 2039 is when you'll be able to hear oh, it. Oh, man. Counting down the days. I got a little calendar on my wall just for that. <laughs> so um, we should probably talk about some of the actual uh, elements of the movie. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess we we did talk a lo- uh, quite a bit about the genie. Do you guys have more you want to say about the genie, or should we jump into some other characters or songs, or uh, where do, where do you want to go? Maybe I guess since we started genie, maybe we could talk about other characters as well. It's hard, right? Because um, because a lot of them are not terribly fleshed out. Aladdin is one of those mm-hmm. um, kind of audience fantasy characters where. He his his personality is kept to a minimum in some ways so that you can identify with him, and I think Jasmine yeah, yeah. is much the same way. She has a kind of um, early '90s pop cultural feminism veneer over her character. I don't know how you guys felt like that. Where apparently it's it's much stronger in the live action movie, which I have not seen. Yeah, I haven't seen I haven't seen the live action either. But yeah, I agree. You get to know very basic. The very the you know minimum what you said just so we can kind of identify you see him you know fleeing stealing bread hey he needs food but then giving away the bread kind of you know saving the cat and um, other than that there's not just this desire to to that he's not just this worthless street rat and there's more to him um, but other than that there's yeah there's that's that's mostly it. <laughs> Although one one nice thing about that that I liked is that they resisted making him kind of one dimensionally noble, because he is yeah, he is yeah. very afraid that when he gets anything it's going to be taken away from him and 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 that felt like a real struggle to me it it, it, it felt like something that even a good man in his situation would feel because that, yeah. that I mean that really brings in the whole third act of this movie because he yeah. won't set the genie free when he should because he's he's afraid that he's going to need something yeah. No, that's that. That's actually a good point. I, I I wasn't thinking about that, but yeah, the idea of the diamond in the rough. But you first meet him fleeing after you know, stealing stealing food, and so there's this contrast of he is this sort of, pe- you know, petty criminal. But then you know he gives it away to these kids, but then he also saves these other kids from being whipped. Which man, that's <laughs> 
that's pretty intense. But um, but yeah, so I love that kind of duality. You see multiple aspects of his character. Yeah, I think you should talk more, uh, Michael or or Tim. You could jump in there too about the the way that his fear drives the third act. I hadn't really um, thought about that, but I think that there's um, yeah, there's there's maybe some more that we could pull out of there as far as some thematic elements in this movie and and the way that I don't know the way we should think about it. Maybe the way, the the right behavior or the the wrong behavior that he shows there. Well, as I said, it's a very human, very understandable fear. This is a guy who's had nothing, and as soon as he gets something, he realizes how fragile that is, right? I mean, he's been made a prince by some... uh, It's not really clear what happens, whether he's actually been made a prince or whether the genie has just concocted an elaborate scam for him. And and I, I think he quite reasonably feels like he's going to be discovered as a fraud, even though that's not what jasmine cares about it's not really what the sultan cares about um he's afraid he's going to be discovered as a fraud and it's all going to be taken away from him and because of that he doesn't want to give anything to anyone else because he feels like he has to hold on to the power um and and in, in that way he he does kind of parallel jafar right because jafar's whole thing is about grasping as much power as he possibly can and that that gets him into his own brand of trouble at the end of the movie yeah, that's always really wow. interesting when the uh, the heroes and the villains kind of um, parallel so each other so closely. You it's know? the it's and the it, MCU approach. Well, yeah, and and I actually have seen the live action of this one. Um, it was a. I, I feel like I have to justify myself. <laughs> You're so apologetic. <laughs> you, let our, you let our listeners down, Josh. We were already doing the show, and that came out too. Like you should have. Known I know. Better. I know. It's really bad. It was. It was at a company event, and you know, I felt like I, I needed to go and socialize and stuff. So, um, anyway, uh, they really actually play that parallel up a lot in the movie. Like Jafar, Jafar, when he first meets Aladdin, in in the live action one, it says basically like I. I came from where you are and I grasped for power until I, until I, you know, rose all the way up to this position. So, um, yeah, it's, it's presented as a, as a much more of a parallel there in that movie too. But I think it's interesting that there's, there's uh, echoes of that in this one. Like I, I hadn't really caught that or, or thought about that until you just brought it out, Michael. So yeah, same here. Yeah. It's, and it's not something I noticed until this time through, although I, I probably haven't seen the movie since I was a teenager. So, it's not something I would have thought about then, probably. <laughs> the other thing I was thinking about Jafar is how much he really works with Iago as far as um, just really understanding him and his motivations and what's going on. Because he's he's so um, – uh, what's what's the word? Like he, – He's he, he presents himself. I mean, to everybody in the movie, like he's just unreadable. Like you don't really know what he's going for, or what he's after, or anything. But uh, because Iago is there, then Iago's kind of like his his id or his ego yeah. or something. <laughs> yeah, I don't know the right psychological term for it. Um, but like he's he's the one that's always uh, kind of um, betraying <laughs> what what yeah. is really happening inside, uh, like behind that mask of, of Jafar's. Yeah. I did think that was interesting about Jafar is how, you know, this, you know, other than some out, you know, outbursts here and there, he's really more patient and methodical. While yeah, Iago is the one that's freaking out about everything, getting upset about everything. And that's just an aspect about those two, those uh, characters, their relationship that I just I, I'd forgotten about. 
My understanding is that in early, and they must have redrafted this movie 40 times for the number of things I saw that they changed. But one of the earlier drafts had Iago being the calm one and Jafar being the the one who's out of control. And it's it's interesting to think about how much worse a movie that would have been, that so much of Jafar's uh, mm. menace comes from the fact that he doesn't fly off the handle, that he's very controlled. And so much of Iago's comedy comes from the fact that he's not. Yeah. Oh, that's true. How did you find Iago uh, on this viewing, Michael? <laughs> I, I liked him, and I, I went in ready to hate him. This, I think, is actually one of the very few Disney movies where I don't hate any of the sidekicks. I even like Abu. Um, that was the next yeah, one I was going to ask Yeah, about. <laughs> I, 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 I was concerned, but I, I ended up liking him quite a bit, except the time he talks, he, if, you, if you have the closed caption on it, at one point he actually says something in English, and that bothered me. But um, I, I liked uh, Tiago, and I, I, I thought Gottfried, um, I, there's no nuance to that performance, of course, because nuance <laughs> is not what Gilbert Gottfried does, but it's a very mm-hmm. funny performance, uh, apparently with quite a bit of ad-libs. Supposedly oh, wow, the one where he, he's packing to leave and he says, we'll take the guns and we'll take... And how about this photo of me? I think I'm making a weird face in it. Apparently that's a that's a Gilbert Gottfried ad lib, which is very funny. It is very funny. Yeah, I that's felt great. like he got funnier through the movie. The, the start of the movie, I found him a little annoying. Or, much, or more annoying than I, I remembered him being um, when I when I watched it as a kid. I, I don't know. what not one of his first lines... Uh, I. What a surprise. I think I'm going to have a heart attack and die from the surprise. That's really funny to me. <laughs> yeah. I think it's – yeah, it's – actually, when he's in him – when he is himself, he's really funny. When he's doing the uh, the echoing thing is when I found it. Ah, found yeah. Him annoying. He probably found it uh, – Iago probably found that annoying too since he had to – was made to do that. Yeah, it works in canon, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is what my nine-year-old had to say about Jasmine was, I don't think Jasmine really likes apples because every time she gets one, she just holds it the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's how she maintains her figure. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was a, a keen insight. Yeah. She, she should be hosting this show. <laughs> she should be, really. <laughs> you and I should retire and we should let my niece and your daughter come in and do it. That's right. Maybe <laughs> once we've gone through all the movies, we can just set them up to do to go through the whole canon over again. Yeah, just restart. Perfect. Princess Jasmine, um, I think, is the weak link in terms of mm-hmm. vocal performance. I, I Linda Larkin, who plays her, I, I was not terribly impressed by, and I, I found myself wondering why they didn't just let Leia Salonga, who performs the singing parts, why they didn't just let her do the mm-hmm. acting too. I mean, she's a stage actor. I'm sure she could do at least as good a job as Linda Larkin, about whom I know nothing, so I, I don't mean to pick on her, but I found I found her performance kind of lackluster. Yeah, Linda... What, sorry, what's the name of the, the singing one? Leia Salonga. She's, oh, she's, Leia, yeah, that's right. So Linda, Linda said in one of the clips I saw, she said, um, they knew I couldn't sing, but eventually they were going to figure out that Leia could talk. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah, I felt like with Jasmine, a lot of her motivations are some of the things she said. I just couldn't understand how she arrived at that way of thinking, because, you know, which I I totally forgot that she had only been in this palace her entire life, which is just kind of crazy to me. Um, But then also how she doesn't, you know, she doesn't want to, you know, just marry any old prince, you know, 
even though it's law and it's kind of what she does. She wants to marry for love, but I'm like, what? How? How did you come to that conclusion? Like, what? You know, it's so countercultural and so unlike what she's kind of presented. How? How did that happen? Right. Li- literally, it, everyone you've ever met married in a uh, in, in an arranged marriage. Yeah, yeah. Like, where where is this coming from? And I feel like that may have. Had there been something behind that, maybe it would have made her more interesting. But just to have this idea, I don't know, just didn't make sense to me. It it felt it felt like they had to shoehorn in a kind of girl power plot. Yeah, yeah. which which worked fairly well in Little Mermaid, and it worked fairly mm-hmm. well in um, in Beauty and the Beast. But to to me, it went too far in this movie. Not because not because I'm against marrying for love. Mm-hmm. or anything like that just yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, as you say it didn't feel like it didn't feel like the character had earned that yeah yeah earned that viewpoint or the movie mm-hmm. it didn't feel like the movie had earned that viewpoint for the character yeah yeah totally Josh, uh you're, you're arranging marriages for all your daughters what do you think well that, that is my plan <laughs> definitely um so yeah i i, I don't know um I mean, maybe I shouldn't be showing them this movie. They'll be getting the wrong ideas in their heads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be marrying some street rat. Yeah. Um, I, th- I I wonder, though, how that relates to the original. I haven't, I haven't read the original. I don't know if either of you have. I know in, um, the, the, the genie becoming free um, – is one of those things that was was added by Disney and and is kind of a an American value that's put in there, you know, like um, the the desire for freedom. Uh, not that all people don't desire to be free, but you know what I mean. Like a, a America is like that's that's one of our slogans, you know. <laughs> um, uh, I, I wonder if the girl power thing was was part of that. Just yeah. you know, the, this is this is you know a original. Um, Arabic tale, but it's being told now through the lens of of Americans, right? And well, and the princess who is not called Jasmine in the Thousand and One Nights is uh, is essentially a plot device. So, mm-hmm. so giving her anything to do would would make her more of a person than she is in the in the original story. Princess Bedrulbador is the uh, is is her name in the in the uh, Thousand and One Nights. Harder to slap that on a Happy Meal. Yeah, well, it seems so because they didn't, right? Like, this is one of those things that I often wonder about is, like, um, you know, this was the largest growing, grossing movie of, of 1992. Like, would, would all of us just be, like, that would just be rolling off our tongues had they just, like, been like, you know what? This is an awesome movie. We're going to make a half a billion dollars. <laughs> like, let's just go for it. Like, would we yeah. all be able to say it in the same way that we can say whatever? Uh, Jasmine? <laughs> <laughs> Having trouble remembering the name of the princess from Aladdin? <laughs> yeah, maybe so. Yeah. It, it, it feels like a, set, a setback, though, from the last two movies, which which have women at their center, and, and they're, they're comparatively well-developed women who, who feel rounded. To, to me, the whole, I don't want to marry, I don't want to be in an arranged marriage, felt less like a uh, personality trait and more like a, a kind of approximation of a personality trait, a shorthand. And I mean, it's not her movie, so that's part of it. It's 
ostensibly Aladdin's movie, but as you say, it's really the genie's movie. So maybe I'm asking for too much. Maybe the fact that she's not a plot device as she is in The Thousand and One Nights should be enough. I don't know. Yeah. And as I've already mentioned, like I saw, the, I, I did see the live action of this, and they do round her character out a bit more. They give her a song to sing, and um, so she is she is fleshed out a little more. But um, I'm not going to go to bat for that movie. That would just be <laughs> that would be a bridge too far. <laughs> but I just feel like somebody's going to write in and tell us, like uh, you know, in the live action, Jasmine it actually has a is a little more. Uh, of a of a full figure, and I'm gonna say, oh yeah, but you should just write. If that happens, about. you should just write back a single sentence. What's the name of our show? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's another thing I was curious about. So it's kind of uh, the Sultan just offhand says, oh, if you know, if her mother were here to see this, and it was another one of those kind of small things where I'm like, oh, I'm. I, I'm kind of curious what, like, kind of almost like what happened, you know, why does Jasmine feel this way? What happened? Like, are those connect? Like, what is, what's the story with that as well? And I feel like there's several little things like that about Jasmine and just the family in general that they kind of just leave, leave out, which maybe was fine. I don't know, but it left me wondering as well, just to to add it in one sentence, you know, just throw it out there, but then not give any other details at all. Oh, you know, you can count on one hand the number of, Disney yeah. heroes who have a who have both a living mother and a living father, mm-hmm. but Jasmine's Absolutely. mother is the, uh, the the kind of indirect source of the funniest line in the whole movie to me, which is when the Sultan says her mother wasn't nearly so picky. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that is a pretty good self-deprecating line from his part. <laughs> That's fantastic. And honestly, the one prince that we see, I, I don't blame her for not wanting to marry that guy. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So you prince can you can kind of, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, or, I can get or for that matter, that. the person whom Aladdin pretends to be, because that's that's the interesting thing, right? He wants to win her, and so what he does is is he tries to be what he thinks a prince is, and it's just this pompous mm-hmm. moron. You know, who, who talks about how much money he has, because I guess that's what princes really are like in this universe. And maybe in ours, too. I don't know. I've never met a prince. Yeah, no, I kind of love that. Now that this may have been some of the genies doing as well, but that whole kind of the whole entering, you know, into the palace, it does seem like a very juve like or maybe maybe that's how princes enter with all these, you know, many numbered servants and gold camels and but it just seems kind of like someone who doesn't know what a prince is supposed to be like and just has these imagine, you know, these ideas. Right. Right. I think that's an interesting. Uh, it, it it parallels that same thing again of the you know the the way the hero and the villain kind of parallel each other. They have this the same thing that's driving them, the fear. And in this case, it's not the the other prince, Ahmed or whatever, is not a villain, but like a lot. Aladdin is becoming what he despises in order to try and and get something, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that's and that and that's I, I don't know. That's kind of the story of this movie is is him, um, you know. What's the what's the line, you know? Like staring into the abyss and uh, figuring out that that's not who he wants to be, and 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 then changing everything. The 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 thing though is he's he's attempting to become somebody else to win 
over a woman whom he's already won over by being himself. And, and then Jeannie recognizes this immediately, right? Because he's that's his, his advice: tell her the truth, be yourself. Uh, but that that's what's you you could you could imagine it being played for tragedy in a different movie. Is is him attempting to become this other person to make this woman who already likes him like him? Yeah, there's a lot of irony in that. <laughs> But she's very punctual. <laughs> <laughs> Aladdin, as I learned from Disney Adventures magazine in 1992, is played by the guy who played DJ Tanner's boyfriend, Steve, on Full House. I'm glad you mentioned that, Michael, because uh, my friend who listens to the show, um, she, she she let me know that this is very important detail. Like, very, very, very important. <laughs> you know, um, his the guy's name is Scott Wang, Winger, I think it's pronounced, but in our house we've always called him Steve Wiener. <laughs> Which, if he's listening, I'm sorry, I don't mean any offense. I'm sure he's listening. <laughs> How weird though, I like that, him. that 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 guy had so much clout in 1992 that he ended up being the 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 lead in the largest grossing picture of the year. You know, I don't know if it was related to his role on Full House, like at least the way that he tells it. And I don't know if um, the way he tells it is is 100 percent true, you know, but like uh, he basically says, you know, he was auditioning for this thing, you know, they're, they're working on it before Beauty and the Beast has come out. I think Little Mermaid had probably come out already, but he said that he wasn't really like aware of it as a 15 year old boy or whatever. You know, like he, you know, he's he's a little older than us, so um, he was just like, oh, I'm auditioning for some cartoon, like whatever. You know, like I I don't know that it was his clout that got him that as much as I mean maybe the offer to even audition was his clout. Maybe I don't know, but. Definitely, this is the bigger role, I would say, except for people who were um, preteens at a certain age of life and were in love with uh, Steve, or whatever his name was on that show. Steve. Hale, I think was his last name. Hale, yeah, Steve Hale. <laughs> Which, for some reason, I remember. Um, think of the things I don't know. Open up, Michael. Open up, Michael. Tell <laughs> us about your, your love of Full House. Oh, uh, man, I loved Full House. I did, too. Yeah, yeah same here, same here. I loved it. Great show. Which makes me now that we're talking about this, I guess I should have looked online, but was this kind of like his peak as far as his acting career? Like, has he done anything since this? No. Well, I mean, I'm sure sure he's done things, but no, this this was definitely his peak. Yeah. He's actually a writer now. So I I, I watched a little, I watched a little feature with him too. I I watched a lot of features in in preparation for this one. Um, It was actually really sweet. Like, so he, he actually tried to audition for the singing and, and couldn't make it. But he went and hooked up with uh, uh, Alan Menken like 30 years later, and Alan Menken kind of gave him a voice, voice coaching lesson. It was it was actually really touching and a really sweet little story in this little like mini documentary. And then uh, you know Scott brings out the point. He's like, I, I've been telling myself I can't sing for 30 years because I failed this one time. And, failed to failed to carry the carry the lead vocal of a major motion picture musical which means you can't sing yeah but i mean you totally understand why he would feel that way and i i thought that was actually a really like powerful little statement like what you know 
how many little failures, I mean, much smaller failures do we carry with us and, mm-hmm. and that we allow that to define us. Like I cannot do this thing because we failed at it. And, um, oh, wow. yeah, I thought, I thought it was, I thought it was nice. It was, it was, it was a, it was a nice little, uh, 30 year on, um, Aladdin documentary thing. <laughs> One more thing about Steve Wiener, though, which is that in the uh, in the obligatory Full House episode where they all go to Disney World because um, Full House was on ABC, which is a Disney property, so all the TGIF shows went to Disney World at one point or another, and uh, and and in that episode he gets he gets angry because uh, the guy dressed as Aladdin at the parks is hitting on DJ. Get it? <laughs> get it? That is awesome. Oh man. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that's the that's the kind of uh, what's that called? Inner like when it's metafictional. Inter- yeah, that, <laughs> that's the kind of metafictional uh, stuff that we need. <laughs> <laughs> that's the sort of content our listeners tune in for. <laughs> I love that. I don't remember the going to Disney. I don't remember much of that show though. I remember really liking it, but I don't actually remember the show very much. Oh yeah, all the ABC sitcoms, all the ABC family sitcoms went to Disney World because you know it was a way to. Uh, it's synergy. Yes, synergy. That's right. That was actually what I was working for was synergy, not metafiction. But metafiction works much better there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I made that. I made that sitcom into an experimental work of theater. <laughs> <laughs> it does make you wonder who played Aladdin in the movie in the Full House universe. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's some movie. Tim, you might know this because that's that's your thing, right? On your night G shows, you guys talk about a lot of movies. Isn't there some movie that kind of plays up that, like, uh, who plays? Like the the actors, like who's who's playing the actors in the movies that they're referencing inside this movie? Yeah, I don't know. That is a good. Yeah, I don't know. I, it may not have been a movie that referenced it. It may have just been some. <laughs> you know, I think it was. It was probably like an article on the Ringer or something that was trying to figure out like because in the Marvel universe, like the. Uh, you know, speaking of synergy, you know, uh, inside the MCU, like there's there's all these references to movies, and because the Marvel universe, every actor in the world has at least had a bar- bit part in yeah. one of them at some point at this point, you know. So I think there was a Ringer article that was trying to figure out like what does Hollywood look like in the Marvel universe <laughs> since <laughs> all of these actors are actually superheroes and not. Yeah. Anyway. TV Tropes has a page on that too called uh, Celebrity Paradox. Yeah. Oh man. It's all on TV Tropes. It's <laughs> true. Everything leads back to TV tropes. It's really amazing. That's great. Well, you know, guys, at some point we're going to have to talk about the fact that this movie is set in an imagined Middle East. I know, I know, we've, been, I know we've been studiously avoiding talking about that. but yeah. I thought you were going to say at some point we're going to have to talk about the fact that it's a musical because we haven't talked about any <laughs> songs yet. But yeah, let's talk about the, uh, the Middle East first. <laughs> so in the original print of the movie, as I'm sure you remember if you had the soundtrack, uh, although maybe not since you guys taped it off of your television, the yeah. line in <laughs> Arabian Nights was... was where they cut off your nose if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, uh, but hey, it's home. And they changed it to uh, 
to where the heat is immense, where it's flat and immense, and the heat is intense. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. Um, and and I I think that that's a kind of telling complaint that people had about it because there's there's this vision of the Middle East, which is it's never specifically located. In fact, at, at certain points in the movie, it appears to take place in India rather than in uh, Iraq or Egypt or wherever else. Um, it it it's 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 what the the literary critic Edward Said calls Orientalism, which is setting up a kind of imaginary version of the quote East with a big E um, as a way of defining the West as what we're not right. So um, you know we're not barbaric. So we show this cartoon of the barbaric Middle East to remind ourselves that hey you know aren't we civilized? Although a look at the news right now. Uh, might may make you wonder how civilized we really are, um, or um, you know the, the the kind of weird sexualization of the women in in Aladdin, right? There's starts with Princess Jasmine, but most of the women whom you see are dressed as belly dancers. So there's this kind of weird Middle Eastern sexuality that's part of that too, right? These women are not demure like our women. They they have arranged marriages which are not like ours. So I, I, I think that the charge of Orientalism um, is very difficult to avoid. And yet what I read is an awful lot of Arab Americans really like this movie because for once, um, Arabs are not portrayed as uniformly villainous, which, you know, for much of Hollywood history, they were. So it's complicated, right? Yeah. For most of Hollywood history and all of post nine eleven history, right, <laughs> right, right. It, but it, yeah, it is else. weird to me that they got away with this movie in nineteen ninety two. Because even as a kid, I remember hearing that line about cutting off your nose and thinking, oh, <laughs> "What?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, after reading about the line, they changed. I was surprised that why didn't they also just change? Like they went so far, you know. Why couldn't they just go on one little step? But I, but I, I'm with you as far as um, it, it's a really complicated matter. And I was thinking a lot about it while we were watching, you know, especially now and like in hearing. I think what, same way you said, like a lot of people who may have Middle Eastern um, descent, you know, maybe maybe like or have have enjoyed, and it's that kind of that weighing that scale of like which which is which is a worse thing, no representation or not great representation. And there's one aspect of, Hey, this, this is a story that people are seeing. Maybe that will interest them in these, uh, the stories that they originate from or, but then it is, there are these, these problems with it as well. It's, it's a, it's, it's tough. Well, and then there's, it's a, it's a movie about the middle East without, as far as I know, a single middle Eastern actor playing a character. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was and I even looked and I was even wondering how even uh, among the crew and I could be wrong. I didn't I didn't I, I did not do as much digging as I wanted to. But even among the crew, the, who who people talked with or reached out to the writers or any of the production team, how many, you know, had a background um, in this area, you know, a more you know Arab or more Middle Eastern background. I, I don't think that was the case. I could be wrong, though. But that that's definitely I don't know. It's. Yeah, that's definitely a problem. And yet, it does seem like they did some research, and they they tried to mm-hmm. they they tried to make references to Middle Eastern art and culture. I mean, some of those references I think yeah. are, you know, kind of troubling. 
but I, <laughs> I, 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 I don't think they approached it entirely flippantly. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's so hard to talk about a movie that's 30 years old um, for its political values. You, you know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially since this was for the vast majority of white Americans my age, our entree into Middle Eastern culture. Yeah, yeah. In fact, is this one of the fr- and th- I should know if I even just think about it. Is this one of the first Disney like animated films that kind of leave sort of European or white narratives? I'm trying to remember. I, uh, well, you know, I don't know. Um, I don't know. The, the Jungle Book is set in India. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. That's but, right. But that's the Jungle right. Book is written by a white guy, right? It's it's Rudyard yeah, Kipling's yeah. version of yeah. of India. Um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, this is the first one in a long time and, yeah. and it's the first one to feature, uh, mostly human characters as well in human mm-hmm. society. Yeah. Yeah. You get the South American, um, package films mm-hmm. way, way back, which, Oh, you that's know, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, that's a, that's a totally different thing. Also interesting that like, I mean, this movie is being produced during the goal, the first goal four, you know, um, for for whatever that adds to that as far as that understanding of of that part of the world you know and what's going on and and just what people would know of it right well and yeah. it's it's based not on some sort of historical text but on a myth you, you know what i mean so so the version of the yeah. middle east that they're trying to portray here is not a a realistic version. They're, they're trying to mm-hmm. reproduce the tone of the thousand and one nights, which if they really were doing, there'd probably be a lot more nudity. <laughs> yeah. Well, and what I, so you can correct me on you if I'm wrong here, either of you, but I think in the original nights, Aladdin wasn't even one of the stories in it. It was added later uh, when it was trained for interesting, right? <laughs> yes. I <laughs> like, think that, that right? I think that's true. It's, it's, it's a, um, it, it is an old, uh, Middle Eastern legend, though, is it not? It's just not part of that particular really, collection. Yeah, I really, I really don't know. I don't know, I don't know all the story of it. Yeah. I don't know. Like this, they're coming it, here. For, listen, they're coming here for the full house synergy, not for yeah. the full background of, um, yeah. you know, where these tales came from. <laughs> right. Have either of you read? That train sailed a long time ago. Have, that train sailed. Listen to me talk. <laughs> <laughs> that ship sailed a long time ago. One of our, you know, way back when we started yeah. this thing. Have either of you read The Thousand and One Nights? I'm not, no. It's I, a, I remember a long time ago, but I, it was so long ago, and it was only a hand, you know, here and there. It was, it was bits and pieces. So I, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty much clueless. It's a fascinating book. A lot of the a lot of the stories will be familiar to you. Um, they've just kind of achieved um, ubiquity in the in the West, even. But the the book itself is set up oddly. You, you'll you'll have a you know there's a frame story about Scheherazade um, trying to not be murdered at the end of her wedding night. So she tells the story and it she cuts off at the most exciting part and starts it over the next night. And that's why it's a thousand and one nights. Right. But mm. so there's that frame story, but she'll dive into a story and then someone in that story will tell another story. And then somebody in that story will tell another story. So there's all these kind of interlocking stories. Oh, wow. And it's, it's sometimes difficult to even tell what, um, what layer of reality you're on. It's a, it's a fascinating book and, and a lot of fun. Um, but certainly a lot of it is not appropriate for children. <laughs> and, and the version of Aladdin that, that is in that book, uh, which as Josh noted was added later is not, um, not really all that similar. 
to the movie. For example, the the Aladdin from A Thousand and One Nights doesn't get three wishes. I believe he has unlimited wishes. Uh, the, the the three wishes is a is a thing that I don't know who invented it, but Disney had already used it several other times, including for uh, the Ducktales movie that we'll talk about at some point as an interlude. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I it's 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 tough to talk about, right? Mm-hmm. I know yes. that when the they were casting the live action one, a lot of people were very um, on edge that they would not hire. Um, Middle Eastern actors, and I, I guess mostly they did. I don't know. I didn't, having not seen the movie. I know Nassim Pedrad is in the movie, and that's all I know. And obviously, she's Iranian. Yeah, so that I think that's actually really interesting. The, I mean, you're talking about this Orientalism, and but then there, it has been filtered. You know, like the the Three Wishes. It, it feels very fairy taleish to me. Like it comes, that, that seems to be a, a pull in from, you know, more, uh, you know, Germanic or or, mm-hmm. or something fairy tales. You know, European fairy tales of some sort. Or, or and we mentioned earlier, like the the women empowerment and the freedom and stuff. So it's it's uh, it is hard to talk about because there's it's it's not just one thing. You know, like it's it's very multifaceted. I feel like. Well, yeah, and, maybe, and yeah, maybe Orientalism always is like maybe that's part of Orientalism is that it is always multifaceted because it's always being told by an outsider about another group, right? If I understood you right, yeah, it, it is. It's it's always the West looking at itself by looking at the East as a mirror. Yeah, I so, mean, even the fact that we can say things like the West and the East, I think Saeed would say is is an example of Orientalism, because, of course, yeah. there is no such thing as the East. And even the notion that this this movie would combine elements of the Middle East and India. You, you, I mean, what do those two areas have in common, really, other than there are Muslims there and they're not Europe? Yeah, well, and on yeah, the magic yeah. carpet ride, they end up in uh, Beijing or somewhere. Like, <laughs> I don't know where they are, but I've taken that flight, and it is not that short. <laughs> it is not three minutes long. They go to the Parthenon too. Yeah, yeah, they do. Yeah, so, so there's, there's there's a lot of things in there, and, and it'll be interesting when we get to Mulan, which is, um, which is the next one to be set in quote unquote the East, right? Um, it, it'll be interesting to see what sorts of lessons they learn from the reception Aladdin got, because my memory is they don't pull anything like that with that movie. The, there, there's there's none of this they'll cut off your nose if they don't like your face in that movie. Maybe there is, but I don't remember there being. Yeah. I but it is interesting. They left, they left the uh, cutting off your hands because uh, that's, yes. that's what the guard that allowed to have your hands for a trophy. And then when Jasmine goes to steal the fruit, um, the guy's going to cut off her hand. You Which know? is like, an actual punishment so, mandated by the Quran, I believe. Yeah, but it is interesting that like – so does that make it different? I like, don't know. I mean that that <laughs> is I, – I, I seriously doubt it's it was ever normal in any, any Middle Eastern country, any Islamic country to cut off your nose – somebody's nose because you don't like their face. I'm sure mobsters or the equivalent of mobsters did that. You know, psychopaths did that. But I don't yeah. think that was a normal thing. Whereas my understanding – you know, I'm not, a, I'm not any kind of specialist on the Middle East, so I, I could be totally wrong. But my, my understanding is that was a real punishment. You know? Yeah, and and I 
I'm sure I know less than you do in this area, so I'm not even going to guess. Does it, be- does it belong in a children's <laughs> it's definitely movie? A, I don't know. It's it, it's definitely yeah. a punishment I've heard of, <laughs> but whether it ever actually happened, I have no idea. <laughs> and it was interesting how they just did it like out in the street right there. Like, oh, do you know you just stole this apple and just grabs your hand? I was, that was – yeah. Well, that, that made seems, total sense to me. Little... If you're gonna if you're gonna cut off somebody's hand as a punishment for uh, for them stealing an apple, I think you got to do that in front of people because what's the point otherwise? <laughs> right. The whole point is to dissuade people <laughs> from stealing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah, I, I just I, I don't know. It's difficult to talk about, and I feel weird as a moderately liberal white person talking about it one way or the other, right? Because I don't feel like it's my job yeah. to complain mm. on behalf of people who should hate this movie because they're Arab Americans, nor do I, nor do I feel like, um, it's, it's my responsibility to defend this movie from people who hate it for any reason. So I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but it is definitely difficult to watch it without thinking of, uh, thinking about those issues. How do they handle it in the new movie, Josh? Did they tone down the Orientalism? They just, do they just set it in Chicago? <laughs> you know i don't i don't know um i mean it's it's definitely still in set in the middle east and but i don't i don't remember i don't think the arabian nights song appears in the new movie um and they they kind of they change the structure of it a little bit like you start um yeah, it's just it's it's differently. Like you don't start with the street rats scene, you know, him running through and all that sort of stuff. They, they've 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 moved pieces around. So um, I don't know how that. I, I've only seen it the. I, I can't speak to it. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about the music. We almost talked about it before. Let's talk about it now. So it's interesting. All my kids have different favorite songs in this one. That's so, a good sign, isn't it? it? Yeah, clearly, clearly a lot of good music in this movie. Um, and like, like I said, I think when I was a kid, it was uh, one one step ahead was was my favorite. I just love the upbeatness of it, and you know, when, when I was a kid, I just I really loved those moments in the movies when people were running around. I was like, when yeah. boun- I was always bouncing off the couch or running around myself yeah. or whatever during those those songs. You know, um, probably not fun to watch a movie with <laughs> as a child. <laughs> But I mean, that's a terrific sequence, and the song fits it really, really well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All the music in this movie is very complicated. Uh, you, you see that in One Step Ahead. There's a lot of different parts to it, and you, you definitely see it in Prince Ali, which is my favorite. Sometimes during Prince Ali, there it's like there's another group of people singing another song that is only tangentially related to it, you know, and it all just yeah. meshes perfectly. Yeah, I think that element of Prince Ali is like my favorite now. Like I, I could just, I really like Prince Ali now. Um, it's a great song. Prince Ali is where I learned the word flunky. And I remember I asked my parents, <laughs> as I said, we listen to the soundtrack all the time. I asked my parents what a flunky was, and I'll never forget this. My mother said, "It's a person who doesn't give a damn," which is not, in fact, what a flunky is. <laughs> <laughs> well, I one, one I, I think Prince Ali might be my favorite, or you know, never had a friend like me. But I think sure. Prince Ali is it. But I just love as you're getting towards the end, end of the song. There's this this fanfare of trying to 
exclaim all the stuff that this person has, Prince has, but it's so fast paced you can't I, I you miss most of of what he had. There's so much that they they sing about that I, I still even now I have to slow down or read the lyrics even know what they're saying and i think that's i don't know if that was intentional but it really cracked me up like this is all the stuff but you don't know what it is because you can't hear it's too quick i don't know it is, it. It is too fast the birds <laughs> the birds that warble on key then fly right back <laughs> yes that one i did look up a little bit that one made me laugh the most I, that cracked me up <laughs> It's really, I think lyrically, it's a, it's a really clever song. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of, there's a lot of cool rhyme schemes happening within that yeah. song. And the, the betterness of the genie, like for some reason, I still crack up with the, the parade announcers. Yes. Uh, Don't they look lovely, Jim? <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness, it just makes me laugh so much. Oh my goodness. <laughs> We should jump to the other genie song too. Like we we should maybe do the genie songs together because I think the other the never have a friend like me is similar uh, in just the amount of of crazy, especially at the end that's going on. Um, they both they both have that giant fanfare at the end. Who knew Robin Williams could sing this well? Like those are those are really yeah. professional quality vocal performances. Yeah, and unlike Aladdin and Jasmine, he, he's doing them right. <laughs> 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 that's really impressive really yeah really impressive yeah and he does arabian nights also right no he plays the uh he plays the character oh but he doesn't sing the song i, I do not think he sings that song okay I'm, I'm looking it up bruce adler sings the song okay mm. oh, wow there's a nice homage in the or homage in the cave to uh like there's there's some dancing elephants as as part of yes. that um as part of that uh, you know never had a friend like me song that I, I think i don't know if it's beat for beat but it, it looks a lot like the dancing elephants from the uh from dumbo the genie almost um compulsively references other disney movies which is part of the fun <laughs> <laughs> that's true He's got the Disney Channel inside the lamp. <laughs> so, um, Friend Like Me and Prince Ali are the the last two Howard Ashman songs in the Disney canon. Um, and and I, th- I think in, in those two, you really feel what you miss when that guy died. You know, like the 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 insane amount of wordplay, the insane rhyme structures of those songs. Uh, he really was uh, one of the best in the world at doing what he did. And Tim Rice is good, too. I mean, Tim Rice wrote One Jump Ahead, which has its fair share of that stuff, too. But, um, man, Ashman, uh, it's it's sad to think about how much more he would have produced if he hadn't died so young. Yeah, I agree. It's really, I mean, he's he's definitely got that amazing genius for for the, like you said, for the wordplay and the, and the rhyme schemes and stuff. Really... Yeah, it's a, a sad, sad when anybody goes young, you know. But um, somebody of that that level of of talent and gift for the world, you know, like we're still talking about his music. Um, it's it's pretty amazing. All of the music to me has a kind of 1930s big band feel to it, and I, I felt I, I I was thinking that, and I felt vindicated because I looked, and they said that. The original plan was to have a African-American play the genie and to kind of make him a Fats Waller type. Um, and, and that really makes that music make sense that, that it would be a, uh, there is a kind of Fats Waller quality 
to it. And I don't know if either of you have seen um, the, the guy who performed at the Tonys a few years ago. The guy who who played the genie on Broadway. I, I can't remember his name now, but he's a um, he's a big uh, Fats Waller type, if you know what I mean. And uh, he played he performed Friend Like Me at the Tonys, and uh, man, he was incredible. And you you really uh, you really get that uh, 1930s big band feeling. Oh wow! I'm not. I would. I'm planning on looking that up. Yeah. After this episode. Yeah, you should. <laughs> That's it, great. It, yeah, it, it's. I, I can't imagine what it must have been like to to see this guy do it uh, on stage, live. Oh wow! Oh yeah! Oh my goodness! I I totally forgot this was a a, a theatrical like a Broadway play. Man, I I don't know how I forgot about that. That's that does seem. There's a lot of this. It seems really difficult to pull off. <laughs> yeah, Jonathan. Uh... Free Freeman? Jonathan Freeman plays Jafar in the in the Broadway as well. Is that true? Like well played... I guess what else was he doing? Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess he'd done every voice of Jafar, like every like everything, all the games and like like um <laughs> just you know like every every little side thing, including the Broadway. I I, I would assume up until uh, this other guy played Jafar in the live action one. All another reason to not like the live action stuff, I guess. <laughs> Speaking of games, did either of you play like the? I think it was on both, like the Sega Genesis and Super Nintendo Aladdin. Well, game. Uh, Tim, you have un, unwittingly <laughs> opened a rift between me and Josh because I played the Super Uh-oh. Nintendo and Josh played the Sega Ooh. Genesis. Well, I that is very right. It's it's long been a sticking point in our relationship. <laughs> That's because Sega does what Nintendo don't. <laughs> you know, one thing they did is well, in the Aladdin game, Aladdin uses a sword in the Sega Genesis version, and he throws apples in the Super Nintendo version. They're very different games. Okay. I'm glad you brought that up, Tim, because I was going to bring it up, because that is Capcom did uh, video games of all the Disney properties in the 90s, and most of them are pretty good, but none of them are better than Aladdin. Oh, man. No, yeah. So I, so our family, we had a, we had a Sega, we had a Sega Genesis, and um, I'm I don't yes. think my parents. Good know, job, Tim. Yeah. <laughs> Granted, I will say that we received it from. So I don't know if my parents actually knew they're, you know, like, but, but we, that was one game we had. And I, I think I, it's like much like the movie. I mean, I, I, I played this game all the time. I loved this game so much. I think if they released it for like Xbox or PlayStation now, I would, I would play it. I'm if sure I, you can you, know, you can I, play it online. Yeah, I bet there's a way. Yeah, the, the, uh, I, I have played the Genesis one. It's one of the few Genesis games I've played, um, but the, they're both great. I, it, it's a it's a yeah. really fantastic game that gets the spirit of the movie down really well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Josh, did you play that game? Um, I did play it. I, I don't I don't remember it very well. Like. Uh... <laughs> I, I do remember playing it. I do remember having a sword. <laughs> <laughs> I just remember sometimes, like, you know, I guess with most games, like, if you hit a, a villain, a bad guy, like, they just die. But with this one, I, and, and I may be wrong, but I think I remember it being different reactions, like, I mean, of, like, three or four. But there was one where, like, the, their pants were fought on, and you'd see, like, these, uh, you know, polka dot underwear. And just little, like subtle, funny. Yeah, it just was really, really amusing moments like that. I thought really just made it. It made it really great. 
So what we're saying is, go watch the movie, <laughs> go buy tickets to the Broadway musical, go play yep. all the video games, just don't see the live-action version. Yeah. <laughs> So we got away from the music to talk about the uh, <laughs> the Capcom version of the of the part part yeah. of the Aladdin Empire. So yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't remember how we got there right now. Yeah, yeah sorry. <laughs> well, I, I guess we need to talk about a whole new world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what's what's what to say about it? You know, it's it's good. It's really good. It's really really good. It's better than good. <laughs> but I don't know what to say about it. It's funny. Like we talk about music in this in these shows a lot, but I I feel like I always I, I don't I never have anything very constructive yeah, to me, say about me, it. Me neither. Yeah, I, and I like it. Right, right. It's not like we don't know about music. <laughs> yeah, especially you. You've written a lot about music. You should. Well, right. And those, for those people who don't know, Josh and I know each other because we were in a band together in college. Like, music is important to both of us. And yet, I, I'm with you. I feel like whenever we talk about music on this show, it's just like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> well, and we met. How did we meet Tim? Like, we, we were all working at the radio station. Yeah. Right. That's right. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's right. right. Yeah. So it's not just that we were in a band together, which which is true. But like, we all we all worked at the same radio station also. So. Yeah, but here, here yeah. we turn into we turn into inarticulate <laughs> morons when it comes to talking about music. Oh wow! Maybe we can justify that because it, it's it just shows how much we love it. Like it's our it's our emotional connection to the movie music, not our like rational side of our brain. So the rational side just can't speak to it. Well, I. <laughs> I like that. Let me point out one thing about Whole New World, which is that it does the same thing that we we see in the the larger numbers in the in the the, the louder the faster numbers in the in the show, which is that it um it has the the kind of overlapping vocals um in the in the third verse where Aladdin and Jasmine are singing at the same time, but they're singing different things, and that seems to be something that this movie uh, that the the music in this movie shot for, and hit. Yeah, that's a great point. And it's actually in, in the dialogue too with them, right? Like when they first meet in the marketplace, um, or like and they get into Aladdin's little Heidi Shack thing, uh, they're talking over each other. They're both talking about the fact that they're trapped, but they're both trapped in. It's it's, it's interesting because they're both imagining the other person's life in a very idealized way, um, and but then they're both saying that that actually that life is is a life of being trapped. So it's interesting. <laughs> Nobody feels free until they get on their flying carpet. Yeah. <laughs> Which, speaking of like side characters, how great! I I love the carpet as well. He's in that long tradition of Disney characters who don't have yeah. a voice and yet have more personality than the other characters. Yeah. He's, he's yeah. fantastic, and I believe entirely CGI. Is that correct? I, I no. Read... Oh. Oh. <laughs> oh, excuse me. <laughs> so, no, actually, so this is actually really interesting because he is the like the the carpet is the first like CGI character that that really exists in the world. And now there's of course a million CGI characters, but like the, he is the first CGI character. But what they did was they actually hand animated him first. I, I'm saying him. It could have been a her. I guess. Oh I no, no, because Jeannie calls him Rugman. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, give me some tassel. <laughs> 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 um, so, 
anyway, uh, they hand animated the rug first, and but the the design on the rug is too intricate to hand animate the whole thing, and so they overlaid it with the CGI. And so, ah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so it, it is a CGI oh. character, but um, the CGI is is programmed to match the hand drawn animation. Well, he looks great, which is also wow. It does look great. It all, yeah. that's also true of the um the Cave of Wonders, uh, the the Tiger Cave of Wonders it was hand drawn first, and then they programmed the CGI over it, which is why that looks so great too. Less great than the uh, carpet, but better than the other CGI we've seen in the last couple movies. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, I was really I impressed mean, with the way the sand looks around the, the Cave of Wonders. It, it looks like they um, did each grain of sand individually. It looks really good. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I also noticed the sand around the Cave of Wonders, like on the lip there when he's stepping over. Like it's really. I was like, wow, that sand looks amazing. <laughs> But yeah, you still see kind of the old. I mean, it's the '90s CGI in the, you know, in in that cave sequence when they're trying to escape. Like that's done, you know. Yeah, it looked uh, like doom. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well said, Michael. <laughs> Speaking of '90s video games. Yeah. yeah. So we haven't we haven't quite you know we're we're still not at at the uh, where we will end up with CGI, but. It is interesting the, the how they just keep incorporating more and more of it. You know, like at first it was only backgrounds, or it was only to to kind of get, um, you know, the what, what am I trying to say? Like, and, and what was the first one that we saw was in um, oh Radigan. Yeah, uh, uh, Great Mouse Detective. And, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Like they, you know, couldn't walk, like a computer kind of do it. And then they, this was the reverse. They had the computer kind of figure that out and then they hand drew over it. And now the computer is getting better and better, but they're, you know, to the point where they can hand draw and then put the computer over it. And then eventually, of course, the computer is just going to take over. So for better or for worse. Yeah, for better or for worse. Although I don't know. I mean, the the animation in this movie is really good. The animation in The Lion King, which we're talking about next month, is legendarily good. But I don't I, I don't remember. I'm sure the Wildebeest sequence is done with CGI, and maybe it doesn't hold up. I don't know. This is another one I haven't seen in a long time. Well, um, Michael, we didn't talk about Frank Welker, which I'm really surprised about. Yeah, Frank Welker. I, I, I think he's your guy. I, I think we've mentioned him a couple times. He, he voices Abu here. Um, doing a much more human voice than he normally does, but a good one. Abu is a is a strong character. I agree. I I, I think yeah. Abu was always my favorite as a kid, and um, he loses out to the tiger in my house. I, even though the tiger doesn't do anything, the fact that it's a yeah, big your cat, kids are into cats. Like <laughs> they are super into cats, and so and they're like, so I was like, what's your favorite part in the movie? You know, and they're like. Uh, that that moment when the tiger turns into a little baby tiger. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Uh, but the other part they really like is uh, when Yago does the uh, the imitation of Jasmine. Really? Uh, I'll have the power to get rid of you. Oh man, they love that. <laughs> I'll have the power to get rid of you. <laughs> the the funny flip side is my my kids, especially my oldest. He actually he really loved Abu's impersonation of Jasmine. It cracked him up uh, when they're in like the the prison or the. 
the cell and Abu was upset that he was wooed by her and he kind of does like this kind of impression of her uh, that that cracked him up a lot yeah so that's what Jasmine's in this movie for, really. Yeah, exactly. For the other characters just to do impersonations. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't watch this with my nieces, um, but the uh, I love the part in the marketplace where he's trying to convince the vendor that she's crazy and says that she thinks the monkey is the sultan and she bows down to him and, and Abu like pompously walks around like he's giving orders. That's very funny to me. <laughs> yeah, that is very funny. I love the uh, it kind of and they're running from the guards early in the beginning. The one step ahead and and Abu, pull, Abu pulls out the the sword out of the sword swallower's mouth and is waving it around threateningly, which terrified the guards until you know the one guy's hey we all have swords <laughs> but I can imagine a sword wielding monkey like that's got to be a terrifying image, you know. <laughs> so uh, that really made me laugh a lot. Also, that poor swordsman. Oh gosh, right? Like that guy's dead now. Yeah. <laughs> if you think about yeah. it I know yeah, yeah. You, you yeah. can't think yeah. about it you can't think oh, about God. it just like, I always just like do I always that, think about it they step yeah. on that guy laying on the bed of nails he's probably oh. dead too yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's some more of that uh, orientalism there no, you know no, the yeah, sword yeah, followers and, yeah 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 that, I think that stuff is definitely probably down to go back you know, twenty minutes to that other question. I think that stuff is definitely downplayed in the new movie. I don't. I don't. I don't think there's any sword swallowers or people laying on uh, beds of nails or walking over hot coals. All the local I, color I, is gone. Yeah, I don't remember though, and maybe it's maybe it's in there, but I don't. I don't remember it. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, do you have any? What, you guys have anything else you wanted to say? I always have something that I remember after we get off the call. I'm like, oh, I wanted to talk about this. <laughs> and, and this is the right time to plug our website before they were not live, where you could read the L'Esprit de Scalier <laughs> section of things that Josh and I realized too late that we should have said on the show. That's right. <laughs> I do have one thing that I, I think might have actually been that, but I'm really surprised that you guys even brought this up because it made me think of some some thought I had while watching it uh, this, this time around. Was the, the plot point of of the genie longing to be free um i thought i really enjoyed i thought it was a a neat plot or neat idea in this film but i really liked it a lot because of uh because not and i always i hate i feel bad going back to robin williams but i feel like most of this movie he is manic and crazy but there's in those moments he's able to be really tender and soft-hearted and like a different side of the genie that Robin Williams also pulled off really well. Mm-hmm. And I just thought that was a really special, those scenes were really special and kind of, I think I was surprised because, you know, growing up as a kid, I just always thought of those hilarious, you know, hilarious, wisecracking moments. But to see him more sentimental was really, really powerful. He has that side to a lot of even his manic performances. I think about uh, Mrs. Yeah. Doubtfire has, has a couple of those scenes. And, you know, yeah. his, his sentiment, sentimentality got away from him too, as an actor. Um, and and that could be as annoying as uh, as his manicness, <laughs> but in in yeah. in this movie, I think he he strikes that balance very well. It's it's a really yeah. great performance. Yeah, I agree. One hundred percent. It is, it is, it is what makes this movie what it is for sure. I don't, I don't, I can't. I mean. You're gonna say hard, you can't imagine this movie without him, but you went and watched Will Smith as the genie. I did, <laughs> I did, <laughs> and it's not the same. It's not the same. <laughs> oh man, the only thing about that is, and I'm I'm sorry to be a downer, 
but when uh when robin williams died when he killed himself i should say that this meme went around social media that was a picture of aladdin hugging the genie and it said you're free now genie Mm. which (laughs) since it's such poor Uh, taste (laughs) yeah oh wow do you guys remember that am i making that up no i don't think you are but i you I don't, you've blocked remember, it out. I'm sure I've seen it. Yeah, I don't <laughs> maybe. I'm sure I had seen it, but man, yeah, that's just oh gosh. Yeah. It's such a broken world we live in, guys. Yeah. <laughs> that's all I can say about that. Like we just don't have we don't know how to deal with death. We don't really understand yeah. what freedom is. Like yeah. I mean there's there's a million things that we could we could talk about here. And I mean, maybe some of them are worth talking about, but like it's yeah, it's just a. I, I can't I can't deal with people being sentimental about suicide, about treating it as if it was some sort of beautiful thing. By the way, that meme came from the Academy, as in the oh. Oscars. They're the ones who created that. I just oh, oh gosh, oh my goodness. Oh, that's my, mm. yeah, and I mean I think there's something to that about. Um, I, I don't know, like the our our loss of of taste of of tragedy or something. Like we, I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but like there's there's something about like in our in our current uh, zeitgeist or whatever. Like we just want everything to be um, uh, sentimentalized, like you said, yeah. Michael. You know, like um, yeah, actually. Uh, Tim, you guys were talking about this on on your recent episode of uh, Night Cheese too with uh, um, what the the Princess Bride, and it's like there's there's really hard things in that movie, and they don't they don't try and gloss over it, and they don't tr- like uh, they don't try and say like yeah everything's gonna turn out great, you know, mm-hmm. and I I just don't think like in our modern you know we're only thirty years on from that, but like they're they wouldn't make that movie in the same way, you know? Yeah. 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 Definitely American culture. We have, we're, we are, we're not good at lament at all. We, we are really horrible at it. That's a good word for it. Thank you. That's yeah. That's, that's a much better word than what I mean. I, I was, this is, this is the problem when I, when I start trying to talk, uh, <laughs> in general, no. <laughs> I was like, what? The show, I'm like, I, I have something to say here, but I'm really, it's not coming out, but yeah, thank you. Lament. I think, yeah, we've lost the ability to lament in, in mm-hmm. a lot of ways. Well, uh, during the show, I arranged it with your co-host, <laughs> Stephen Sandridge, that he's going to be our guest host for uh, The Lion King next month. So that's a real night cheese takeover of Before They Were Live. Yeah, this is it's all, all part of the plan. This is going well, <laughs> going really well. No, <laughs> they're going to do those two episodes, and then they're going to kill us, and they're going to run the show. <laughs> They're gonna. No, I, I can't. I can't think of better two people than you guys to do this. So no, it's great. <laughs> well, thank thank you so much for coming on. It was fun. Yeah, really great. Oh, thank you for having me. This was this was fantastic. This was a blast. And where can people find you on the internet, Tim? Oh gosh, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, uh, Twitter, I guess. I'm at I. I'm Tim Rhodes. I don't. I don't know. Okay. I'll, I'll yeah. just stick it in here in my, uh, <laughs> um, Tim Rhodes. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I have a, yeah, we, so the, our night cheese, you can look us up like on, I you know on iTunes, night cheese, our podcast there. And then 
Also, the other one I do with my my nine year old, the way we get by. Um, it's very, but especially the way we get by is just kind of in our free time off the cuff, so it's nothing like noteworthy, but but it's a lot of fun. All right, cool. Well, our press liaison is Tristan Philippic, and Michael and I are on the old interwebs at beforetheywere.live and also at christianhumanist.org. Um, you can help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us on Twitter. I'm at the alt. Michael is at Kel Bummer. Timmy Rhodes is at I'm Tim Rhodes. And we want to encourage you to set your podcast player styles to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. So for Michael Farmer and Tim Rhodes, I'm Josh altman Schofer. I just want to gratefully say that we know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on. So thank you for spending the time with us. I think it's time to say goodbye to Prince Abubu.